Welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. Now, if you're listening last week, we started a very interesting discussion on the on the flood, the biblical view of the flood. Was it global? Was it local? Uh, and we are going to continue that today. We couldn't finish last week, and so we're jumping in uh, right uh, into the evidence and looking at that today. Now, joining me, if you weren't listening, is Krista Bontrager. She uh, is a theologian, a homeschool mom, has worked for Reasons to Believe. Uh, she is part of and oversees the recruitment and training of RTB Scholar Community, the Visiting Scholar Program as well as the courses offered at the Reasons Institute, which I've had the privilege of taking. She's authored the small group study, The Bigger Picture on Creation, co-authored the booklet, The Psalm 104 in Wisdom, You Made Them All, uh, does videos, podcasts, here's one of them, and uh, articles on their website. So, uh, Krista, thank you so much for taking another bit of your time and, and discussing these issues with me. Happy to be here, Ryan. All right, so again, we are going to be jumping right into the middle of a discussion on whether the flood was global or local. So if you missed part one, we discussed a little bit of the Hebrew words. We looked at the, uh, the Genesis chapter seven, where it says all the mountains of the earth were covered. And, and what does that mean? And what are some possible other explanations? Um, and so now we're going to jump into a, a little bit different uh, well, a little bit different aspect of it where we're going to be talking about the flood. And so, um, you know, if, if the flood was local or global, uh, is there any idea of where do the waters all come from and where do they all go? Uh, even if it's a global flood, I mean, that's a lot of water that needs to be evaporated or something. So do we have any idea of what happened with the flood waters? Yeah, well, uh, I'm not a scientist, but uh, I can share, I think probably good place to begin is what scripture says about the waters. And um, what's interesting to me to notice is that the waters, um, I think a big clue about the waters comes in Psalm 104 and Proverbs chapter eight. And I've actually written another book on Psalm 104. And it's, very helpful to think about Psalm 104 as a meditation from King David on Genesis chapter one. He's kind of meditating through the days of creation. And what I find really interesting is on the third day of creation, where in Genesis one, it talks about the land kind of appearing and separating the waters. And uh, we might think of this from a scientific point of view as what we call continent formation, that on the third day of creation, uh, the continents appear and the waters become separated. But what's really interesting in Psalm 104 and in Proverbs 8, God says that on that third day of creation, that the waters will never again cover the earth, that he has established a boundary for them that they cannot cross. They cannot cross the land. And so if I understand those verses correctly, and I, I grant you that those are um, the type of literature there is more, is poetic, but I, we ought not fall into the trap of thinking that poetry doesn't contain truth. Hmm. I mean, after all, um, very common argument for the dignity of humanity is, is Psalm 139, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made in my mother's womb. And that is a very poetic description of what we call scientifically embryonic development. But we don't look at that as, as being any less true uh, just simply because it's in poetry. We just look at it as being a very beautiful 
poetic description of a true reality. And so when I look at Psalm 104, I see that as a, as a poetic meditation on the events of Genesis chapter 1. And so when I, when I see that God has set a boundary that the waters will never cross the land again, they will never again cover the earth, that makes me think that whatever is happening in Genesis chapters 6 to 9 with the flood uh, might not be global. Because if the waters were to cover the face of the earth, the whole earth, the whole planet again, then I might be left in a bit of a, a, a contradiction between um, that view, the global flood view, and Psalm 104 and Proverbs 8. And we have another insight about this from Second uh, Peter. Uh, Peter describes the flood during Noah's day, and he describes it with some very interesting, uh, very interesting phrase. He says that the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Now, why would he feel the need to offer this qualifier of the world at that time? That makes me think it's it's a world that's different than the world that Peter knew, the Roman world that had a different extent, different boundaries. So, I actually think that there's some biblical evidence that tells us that these waters were not global, but rather they were local. And I think that the source of the waters was just quite simply um, the water cycle. It was, it was a very large flood, and it, it rained hard for many days in a row, and there wasn't adequate drainage for it all to uh, drain away and have time to dry. And over time, that's what caused the flood. So it's kind of a um, what we might call, a, what Hugh Ross likes to call a non-transcendent miracle. It's something that uses the natural world, but is, is kind of controlled or intervened by God in a supernatural way. Okay. So I want to now jump into the scientific uh, evidence or else we're never going to get to part two, which is the death before the fall. Man, I'm just having so much fun to, talking about this. Uh, but, you know, Kent even wrote in and, and he talked about it on Facebook again and just said, said talked about the evidence, uh, that the evidence is everywhere of a what seems to be a global flood, that the oil, the coal, fossils, peat moss, canyons, ancient river dried up beds, valleys and mountains, and even uh, mountains with, with um fossils and uh, sea cells on top of these mountains that seem to be uh, evidence of a global flood. And so uh, what does the scientific evidence seem to point towards? Yeah. So I, I'm again, I'm not a scientist, but I'm going to help us think about this a little bit and how to weigh out this type of evidence. So in our, our first part of our conversation, we talked about general and special revelation. And one of our foundational beliefs here at Reasons to Believe is that general and special revelation will not contradict each other when they're properly interpreted. So all of those data points that you just mentioned there are all in the realm of nature. They're all in the realm of general revelation. And But we still have to do the hard work of interpreting those data points. How do we interpret them? And then how do we interpret the biblical text? And then how do we, where those places touch, where they overlap, how do we interpret that and put that together? That is not an easy process, and, and mm -hmm. that takes a lot of learning. Now, I think that your, your listener there is very astute in noticing that many of these data points seem to point to a flood. The question is, is were these things deposited or 
Did they come about through one singular global flood about 6,000 years ago? That's a very different question. They could have come about during processes that happened over time. They could have come about through regional floods. So the question of the timing is very important. And I, for more on the science, I would refer you to the reasons.org website. In fact, just recently, one of the visiting scholars that I work with in my department, uh, Ken Wolgamuth, he's a geochemist, um, came and did a number of videos related to this whole question of scientific evidence for the, for the flood and what is the evidence and how do we think about that. So I want to encourage people to go check out our YouTube channel. They can subscribe and we're going to be releasing those videos in the next uh, months where one by one, kind of like one a week or so, where they can check out some of that scientific conversation from somebody who's eminently more qualified to speak yeah. to that. Yeah, so to kind of finish up this section, would would that kind of be an explanation? Would because uh, I often hear of that there are these flood legends in lots of different cultures. Um, now I immediately start to think, well, if all the humans are wiped out, how would these different cultures have a flood legend? Uh, it seems to be that you know that the maybe the legend came from Noah's family on the ark. They spread out. They told this story, and that's why there's a, the legend. But also, could it be an explanation of that there were big floods, uh, many different floods in different parts of the world at different times? I think that's possible, and I have to tell you, in uh, very candidly, that this is probably an area related to the flood conversation. I get this question a lot, and it's honestly not one that I have looked into. Um, in a very rigorous manner. And so I'm real hesitant to make a lot of statements about it. There's parts yeah. of this conversation I've looked at in detail and really broken it down. But this question about these other cultural flood stories is just really not something that I have looked into. So I'm just telling you in all honesty, all right. I, that's just not something I'm, I'm super qualified to speak into. Hey, that's completely fair. <laughs> Hopefully that'll encourage those listening. Go out, check out, do yeah. your research and figure out, hey, what what do these late legends uh, in other cultures mean and how does that impact our view of the flood? For sure. All right, so we got about 20 minutes. Um, let's jump over to part two of our conversation, Death Before the Fall. Now, again, this is a huge one. Uh, you know, because of my work with Reasons to Believe, I normally will say, hey, I, I lean towards an old earth. The first thing that always comes up is, well, so how do you reconcile death before the fall? How, you know, if there were dinosaurs and animals getting diseases and cancer and dying and eating each other, carnivorous activity uh, before creation, how does that make sense? Because when God, you know, I even here, I have it written down, Genesis chapter one, God said, behold, I've, uh, or sorry, um, I wrote it in a different place. Uh, let's see. But God said, hey, I, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And then there was evening and morning, the sixth day. And so at the end of creation, he sees everything is very good. So what, what do we know about death before the fall? And how does that, again, get reconciled with God making everything very good? That's such a good and very important question because so much rests on how we or what presuppositions we bring to the word good and very good. If from whose point of view is it good or is it very good? Because our tendency, quite honestly, is to interpret that phraseology as perfect. God made everything perfect and our own definition of what perfect is. 
And I think that it's it's important to ask uh, a different question, and that is, what was the purpose of creation? What is the purpose of this creation, and how does that compare and contrast with the purpose of the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth that we read about at the end of the book of Revelation? In fact, I would really, you know, the, the professor in me never dies. And so a great homework assignment for, <laughs> for your listeners would be to compare and contrast Genesis chapters one to three with the final three chapters of the book of Revelation. There are so many parallels between those chapters. They're the most beautiful, I think, supernatural bookends to scripture. But what's interesting is to notice the similarities, but also to notice the differences that in the new creation, there will be no possibility of death. In this creation, there was the possibility of death. In the new creation, there will be no more suffering, crying, or pain. But in this creation, what's interesting to notice is that um, when God talks to the woman after the sin as part of the curse, he doesn't say, now you will have pain in childbirth. Rather, he says, I will increase your pain in childbirth. That makes me think that there was the possibility of pain even before the fall. But after the fall, that pain was increased. The same with work. Work is not part of the curse. Rather, work was given as, as part of Adam's dignity before the fall. It was part of his job. It was part of what he was supposed to be doing and why he was created. It was his purpose. After the fall, work becomes more difficult. It becomes more challenging. But in the new creation, our work will be one of co-reigning with Christ. It will be one of governing. And so it seems that um, in this creation, we, we need to think very carefully. And, and, and I think that we have a tendency sometimes to think in very Sunday school, five-year-old kinds of ways about these issues. Um, and we need to think carefully that that what the scripture really says in the details is that it, it never says it was a perfect creation. It was a good creation. It was good for what it was designed for. I think that part of what this creation was designed for is to help us prepare us for the new creation. It's to help prepare us to rule and to reign and to govern with Jesus Christ. I like to think of this creation as sort of like boot camp. This is the place where we undergo the training and the discipline to really become the soldiers that we were created to be. And our true supernatural destiny will be reached when we're in the new creation where we're reigning with Christ. That's a very interesting point. Uh, that's one that I often make uh, as far as pain. When I talk about the problem of evil, pain and suffering with students is not all pain is bad. There's a lot of pain that protects you. You put your hand on a burning stove, you feel pain, you learn not to do that again. Uh, but if there was no pain, man, you'd be searing your hand off. You know, there, there, there's a lot of uh, pain tells you that there's something wrong with your body. You need to go to the doctor. Uh, and so there's a lot that we can learn from that as well as, uh, you know, I think that, you know, how would we... How do we understand the death of Jesus if we didn't understand what death was? Um, you know, yeah. there, there's those certain things that we can learn about Christ and understanding. Well, when I, you know, as and I, I haven't lost a child, and so maybe I shouldn't use this example, but the pain of losing a child, maybe that gives us a better idea of what it was like for God. 
uh, to give his son for us. And we get a, a glimpse at the grace and the love and the compassion and forgiveness of God that he has on us when we experience death. I mean, even if it's the death of an animal, sometimes for little kids, uh, you, you know, how does that relate to the death of Jesus for us Yes. Uh, and him giving his life? And so sometimes those things, as you mentioned, they can be seen in a good way. Now, Claudia wrote in and, and said, you know, so when we talk about death before the fall, what do we mean by death? Is it uh, are we t- speaking of a physical death? Uh, is it only death of animals, not humans? Were humans dying? What, was it a spiritual death? What do we mean by death before the fall? Yeah. So in the old earth creation position, we would say that humans were the most recent creation. Like they were the last thing that God created on creation day six. But then he created a lot of things before that. When I look out in a general revelation, I know that bacteria has been around for about three billion years, three, three and a half billion years, long time. Dinosaurs were created, you know, about 225 million years ago. And then there's a lot of different species of animals and mammals that bring us up to today. So there were a lot of species of life that existed before humans arrived on the scene. So we would say from an old earth creation perspective that those animals were being born, living, dying. Some of them got diseases um, and, and those things happened long before humans showed up. But that all humans are created in the image of God and that they all come from Adam and Eve, that God miraculously intervened to create Adam and Eve. Now, we would say that human death was introduced at the fall. And the, the case for this, I would say, is that even in um, Genesis chapter 2, where God gives Adam the warning that in the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Mm-hmm. Well, the day that he did eat of it, he did not physically die. What yeah. happened? He spiritually died. He became separated from the creator. And that close, intimate, face-to-face fellowship was no longer possible. And that what happens then is when God clothes the man and the woman with the animal skins, some Christians will try to argue, see, this is the first incident of death in scripture. But that is something that is is an inference that is read into scripture. Scripture doesn't actually say that those were the first animals or the first beings to die. Another hint that we get is in Romans chapter 5. It talks about that in Adam's sin, in Adam's uh, spiritual death, death came to all men or all Mm -hmm. humans. And that means physical death because the context is talking about the resurrection. So in that, it doesn't say that all death came or death came to all living creatures or everything that had breath on the face of the earth. It just says death came to all humans. And everywhere in Scripture, the the whole point of Scripture is to bring about spiritual life, spiritual reconciliation between the creator and humanity. So I would say that the, that the weight of scripture is that the death that was introduced was spiritual death or separation from the creator and from humans. Okay. Now, when it comes to, you mentioned, you know, talking about, hey, this isn't a perfect creation. We understand this is, God did not design it to be heaven, uh, but it's good. It's for his purpose. What would be a purpose of millions of years of animal death before the creation of humans? 
Yeah, and that's where general revelation really helps us out a lot. Um, I don't know if special revelation has a whole lot to say about that, but general revelation, we look out in nature and we see that the earth is replete with resources that we use in our everyday lives that we don't even realize are the result of animal death. Like, you know, those home improvement shows that so many of my friends love to watch and, <laughs> and the granite countertops that they, they put on, on in those fancy kitchens. You know, that stuff is a result of what's called biodeposits. It's the result of, of animal death that is compacted and cooked over a long period of time. And then we go in there and we harvest it and we polish it up and we make a beautiful kitchen out of it. We put gas in our car that is the result of millions of years of decay of animals that we can go out and harvest and turn into a fuel for our cars. There's a case that can be made um, that my associate Dr. Hugh Ross makes that we could not even have the high-tech society that we live in today without uh, the millions of years of animal death that preceded us because we use these resources to help us navigate our everyday life. Very interesting. So if God's purpose for creation is for humans to live on this planet, to have as many humans be here as possible so that eventually, you know, we can be reconciled with him, um, then in order for us to live, we need resources. In order for resources to be here, there had to be animal death. So therefore, maybe an argument you're saying it could be made uh, that animal death was not actually evil, but it's part of God's good creation for the purpose in which he created. I would say so. And you could even tie this into creation helps uh, facilitate the Great Commission. It helps us get the gospel out to the ends of the earth more quickly. Part of living in this wonderful high-tech society that, we're, that we live in now that is facilitated because of the resources that we get and that are, create, that are made from these an the animals that have died over millions of years, that actually helps us facilitate the Great Commission uh, to bring the world to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ much more quickly and efficiently. Oh, very good point. So what about the argument that's often made about animals being vegetarian before the fall? You, we, we see in Genesis chapter one, it says, I've given you every plant yielding seed in the face of the earth, that every tree with, bear, you know, with seeds in its fruit, you shall have them for food and to the beasts of the earth and to every bird in the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And then it's not till Genesis nine after the flood where it says uh, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I've given you the green pants, I give you everything now. Uh, so w what is that argument where the, maybe the animals just dying and there was not carnivorous activity or was there actually animals eating other animals before the fall? Yeah. And I think that what is not controversial is that humans were designed to be vegetarians before the flood. Like, and we know now from science, there's an increasing amount of research that eating too much meat can actually shorten your life. And that there is something to be said that we do seem to be designed um, for more of a plant-based lifestyle. But eating a certain amount of meat is okay. But um, before the fall, it certainly seems that that whole plant-based lifestyle was part of God's original design. But he has also put things in our bodies to be able to process and digest meat. And so after the flood, he kind of opens up that 
new area of a food resource for us. The real question is the one that, that you brought up is whether or not there were carnivorous animals before the flood and what were the animals eating. And based on that one verse in Genesis, there is much that is extrapolated from that scientifically where they try to make the case that, yes, uh, the Bible teaches that all animals were uh, vegetarians before the flood. I'm not as convinced, you know, just in theology, just quite candidly, um, it's it's not generally a good idea to make a case on one verse. And given, uh, you know, you want to have the whole counsel of God. And when there's only one verse on something, I always take a very tentative position. And it's like, well, there is this verse, but, you know, we, we need to kind of hold that carefully because there's yeah. some other verses in Scripture. You know, we could build a whole doctrine on on one verse that maybe Jesus doesn't know the future because he, there's a verse that says he doesn't know the hour of his return. So we have to be very circumspect when we build a big, a big structure on one verse. So I'm, I'm a little bit circumspect about that. But when we look in general revelation, it seems pretty clear that um, the, the case is that there was carnivorous activity before the fall and before the flood. So, yeah, you're absolutely right to notice that that phrase in Genesis chapter one that seems to imply that the animals were vegetarians before the flood. However, the the, the whole biblical case is a little thin. So I would say, you know, like there's a possibility there. But when I go on in, into general revelation, it becomes more clear to my knowledge, there is no historic Christian doctrine that requires a belief in uh, vegetarian animals before the flood. Like there's no uh, central core doctrine that rests on that. That's more of a fairly recent belief, um, you know, with the rise of flood geology in the 1960s. Yeah, definitely not a salvation issue. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to believe that they're vegetarian or not uh, in order to go to heaven. Now, so kind of maybe the last question then, um, with animals, carnivorous activity, uh, wouldn't that kind of be animal suffering? Uh, then are we saying that evil suffering and death are not Adam's fault and that there you know, was suffering, you know, because animals are feeling this pain that we kind of talked about a little bit before, but and suffering uh, before the fall? I think that, for sure, in the fall, the, the animal suffering becomes worse because okay. humans are more corrupt. And as we said before um, in our conversation about the flood, uh, humans can pollute their animals. They can harm their animals. And if humans are violent and they don't handle their animals properly, um, the animals can also become polluted by that and they can also become violent. Um, so I think that definitely animal suffering increases after the fall. But whether or not there was physical pain and suffering for animals before the fall, I would say that certainly seems to be true from the from the record of general revelation. I would have no reason to to believe that that's not the case. However, given the way that the creator has set up the universe, it seems that some amount of uh, pain and suffering was part of this from the beginning. Um, but again, remember, this is not the perfect creation. 
It is only in the new creation where we are told that there will be no more suffering, crying, or pain. So we want to be very careful to keep um, our, our two creation model very distinct. Okay. Well, I think you have given my listeners uh, a lot to think about. Uh, hopefully they can go check out more resources. Where can they find more information on what you're doing and, and the work of Reasons to Believe? Yeah, everything Reasons to Believe is at reasons.org. We have a lot of podcasts and blog posts where, and social media. If you want to interact with the scholars directly, they all manage their own social media pages. So people can post their questions there to our scholar team. And they love to interact with people and, and um, field those questions. And we just want to encourage all of you to check out our blogs because that's really where we're chronicling new reasons to believe in the God of the Bible. Um, that it's not just uh, we only have this certain little um, scarcity number of, of reasons that there's new reasons to believe in God every day. Awesome. Thank you so much, Krista, for taking the time and joining me to discuss these two issues. Happy to do it. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that discussion that I had with Krista Bontrager from Reasons to Believe, as well as part one discussing the global versus local flood. Hopefully it gave you some things to think about. Go check out reasons.org for the blogs and the podcasts and the videos that she mentioned that are in the show, some great scientific apologetic research that they're doing there, as well as theologymom.com to see some of the things that Krista Bontrager is putting out. Again, if you enjoyed this, share it with your friends and family. Help them enjoy it. Hope you have an awesome rest of your day. Blessed week. Enjoy your summer. Sip coffee. Think deeply. This is Coffee House Questions with Ryan Pauly. Won't hesitate to follow your love will guide my